Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're going to continue in our series that we began a few weeks back in the book of Acts. And I'll just uh, say a few words by way of introduction in the book of Acts. You remember how Acts opens up? Look at the screen, Scriptures, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We'll look at this. In the first book, Luke writes, Luke is the author, He wrote also the Gospel of Luke, right? Okay, all right, this is going to be fun. Uh, In the first book, O Theophilus, he says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the first book is the Gospel we call according to Luke, and Acts is considered a second volume uh, of of Luke's account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, Pastor Chris, could I impose on you? Maybe I feel that air behind me. It feels wonderful and great, but Nancy's lips are going to turn blue any moment now, and I appreciate you turning that down a little bit. So, uh, uh, see, I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to help you. See, I'm willing to suffer for the cross up here and be hot so that you... uh, Actually, cold will keep you awake more, so maybe we shouldn't adjust that. But anyway, but I know it's, uh, it's always an adjustment, especially this time of year, you know, and if you're like me, you're grateful for those days you can get that breeze through the house, so Lakeland Electric, you know, you know, the, you know how that works here, right? All right. But, uh, and it says and that, uh, go back to the previous verse uh, there, let me just make a comment, is that Luke is writing the book of Acts is kind of a second volume, and what I want you to notice there is that he says uh, in this phrase, in this opening, that he's writing uh, the book of Acts, uh, and the first book, but as he writes Acts, of what Jesus began to do. And we're calling this series Unfinished because the Acts, sometimes your, your Bibles might have it as the Acts of the Apostles, and it's the actions of the Apostles, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's really the actions of the Holy Spirit, the actions of God's uh, men and women that He has empowered through His Spirit that uh, continues on the mission and ministry of Jesus. Now, Jesus finished uh, salvation at the cross, amen? He said it is finished. We're not continuing that in that sense. He finished the cross once and for all, but the mission, the the great commission, we might say, he is continuing to do that, all right? Go to verse 2, and Luke says, until the day that he was taken up, that's the ascension, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, whom he had chosen. We're going to talk a little bit about those apostles here in a moment. And verse 3 says that he presented himself alive to them, to the apostles, after his suffering by many proofs. Say many proofs. Many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so one of the many proofs that Jesus uh, proved that he was alive was the fact that these apostles formerly disciples, were witnesses to the resurrection. They were eyewitnesses. You know, if you uh, were to go to court and you were going to have a, a type of criminal case or whatever, and you had a faulty witness that got on the stand and did something or said something that does not help your case, you're done. You're finished. You want them, hopefully you get them up there. They're going to say, you know, and of course, if you watched Matlock or Perry Mason or all the, you know, you know, there's always that one witness that they save till the very end and he or she messes everything up. But witnesses 
are reliable only as they are credible, right? Only as they have credibility. And so these witnesses that were one of the many proofs that Jesus established his resurrection. Last week we talked about how the foundation that Jesus began to do and to teach is based around, and that's where Luke begins, is begins at the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus is alive. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, our faith is what? Empty. It's in vain. It's worthless, right? We're just like all the other religious uh, religions of history. But what makes Christianity distinct is it's not about an organization. It's not about a particular denomination or anything like that. It's built around a person. So you remove Jesus and the person of Jesus. You take away Jesus, you have no Christianity. And if you take away a Jesus who is alive, who rose from the dead bodily, and last week we looked a little bit about it, the ascension that's in Acts chapter 1 and how Jesus bodily ascended into heaven and the, these two angels appeared. We, we assume or think they're angels. Uh, they appeared and they told the disciples, why are you gazing up in the heavens? And he, the angel said, this same Jesus, this same Jesus will return in the same way he was taken up. That's really important because there's one of the things that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24, that in the latter days, in the end times, there will be many false messiahs. There will be many false Christs. And there certainly has been false imposters of the Messiah throughout history. And even in our generation, we've had those that said they are Christ or they're the Christ spirit. They're all phonies because it says clearly right there in the Bible that this same Jesus, this same Jesus, not somebody born in another land and not just some imagery through this, this same bodily Jesus will return. And so we certainly affirm the resurrection of Christ. But this morning, I want us to look at these witnesses to the resurrection. Talk a little bit as we round out chapter 1 of Acts. Talk about these witnesses, the apostles, and, um, and we're calling this prayerful preparation because we know Acts, what happens in Acts chapter 2, right? What happens in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit descends uh, upon this church. But prior to Acts chapter 2, there has to be an Acts chapter 1. There has to be preparation. There has to be a preparatory period, and we see how the Lord uh, does that in Acts chapter 1. So, uh, so this morning, as we open God's Word, I trust that uh, we'll draw some principles and encouragement uh, for our lives and also for our church. That's the wonderful thing about the book of Acts because it's talking about the Spirit of God working through His church, and I want that for Grace Church. Do you want that for Grace Church? I want that for Grace Church. I don't think that just you know wrapped everything up uh, like a bow back then. I believe the Holy Spirit still wants to move among His church. He still wants to exalt Jesus in His church. He still is... Uh, affirming and about the great commission of Jesus like we should be in telling others about the glorious gospel. And he empowers us to do that. And so uh, Acts is uh, just a wonderful uh, time that we'll have in the Word. But before we begin this morning, let's pray. Father, we uh, seek your guidance here. We thank you that you speak to us through 
the Scriptures. We thank you that you speak through your Word. God, we thank you that it's the Holy Spirit that has anointed this Bible, this Word, and that the very uh, words of God we have to, to open up and to feed upon this morning. Lord, we pray that your Word will speak to us because it's the very words of God. We pray that your Spirit will teach us and give us understanding, not only for our lives, but for the direction of this body, this church. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight as you lead us now and guide us uh, in this word. We pray in that name above all names, that beautiful name, Jesus. Amen and amen. I want you to notice with me there's five observations here in chapter 1, and I, I want to go through the first four relatively quickly and spend a little more time on the last one. So if I don't answer every question or hit every little nuance in that verse, uh, that's a good challenge for you to get into the Word. You know, this is not meant to be the totality of your Bible study. This is meant to motivate you and encourage you and hope you, hoping that you are in the Scriptures during the week. Hopefully you've invested in some resources like a good study Bible to help you and guide you. And uh, so, uh, but we want to look at five observations here. Number one, notice with me about these witnesses or these apostles is the fact that the apostles fully believed in Jesus. Now, that may just seem on the surface kind of like, well, of course they did. No, they really believed this. This wasn't just some, you know, this wasn't just some fantasy that they had literally walked away from their businesses, their livelihood. They had walked away, when I say, you know, from their family. They went on this three-and-a-half-year venture with Jesus. They faced uh, uh, glorious times and seeing Jesus healing and feeding people and doing miracles, raising people from the dead and feeding 5,000 plus people. I mean, they saw it all. And they also lived with and walked with Jesus uh, for that three and a half years, and they saw him uh, in every capacity. And yet, in, in seeing every facet of living around uh, and living with and ministering along with Jesus, they believed. And not only on top of that, but they are now fully believed because they have been convinced by many proofs that the same Jesus that they saw dead or crucified on the cross, he is now what? He's alive. So they're convinced and fully believe in Jesus. Now, believe isn't, it isn't that they believe certainly the facts and the doctrine of Jesus. No, believe is uh, another word we might say. They fully trust in Christ. And what's interesting is that many of them were convinced and trusted in Jesus almost uh, against their, their predisposed ideas. Look at uh, verses uh, 12 through 14 on, uh, the, on this uh, passage. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Uh, Sabbath day's journey, go back, no, uh, sorry, Sabbath day's journey isn't quite a mile. It's a little under a mile as far as uh, the measurement there, all right? Next verse. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, certainly not that Judas, but another Judas, a common name, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. 
Is that the last verse there? Okay, all right. Um, what I want you to see here, and it lists all those disciples there, but what's interesting is just keep it on that last verse there, is that we see also along with these disciples or apostles that now have gathered, there's 11 of them. Later on, we see that they're going to replace the Judas that betrayed Judas, but there's 11 of the apostles or the disciples, apostles. Uh, but we also see that in this gathering, in this upper room, there is uh, other women a part of this. And not only there is the mother uh, of Jesus, Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is the last time that Mary is mentioned in the New Testament, in the Bible. All right, This is her, the last reference uh, of Mary's reference. But this is interesting too. Don't miss this. And it says, and his brothers. I really find that uh, just, that's one of those things you kind of read past it. But and his brothers, Mary and Joseph, we know, uh, had children. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. His, uh, his, the, the impregnation, the pregnancy was, was divine. It was from the Holy Spirit. He did not have an earthly bloodline father. His father was his heavenly father, and, and we certainly affirm that as a core cornerstone of Christian faith, Right? that he was sinless, but Mary and Joseph had children after Jesus was born. And many of the, the they had children. And what's interesting is that there's different references. I won't look at it right now. You can look it up. But there's different references in the New Testament where it is clear that his stepbrothers, these half-brothers, did not believe that he was the Messiah, in fact, at one point in Mark, I think, he gives a reference where they actually questioned his sanity. So if your family isn't quite on board with your faith, Jesus, the high priest, who understands everything that we go, can relate to that. They did not buy into it. Now, the reason that's important as a proof is because it says now they were numbered among this 120 that we know what, uh, that are gathered in this upper room. So they went from skeptics and perhaps just out and out not buying into this, his, their older brother as Messiah. They just didn't buy into it. But something changed. Something dramatically changed. And Paul references that after when Jesus was resurrected in that account that I believe in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, that one of the first people that Jesus showed himself to was James, his half-brother. That's the same James that we see later in Acts chapter 15 who's pastoring the church at Jerusalem. Okay, so, so his brothers were convinced uh, against their predisposition not to believe, but they believed and convinced now that Jesus is Messiah. He is who he says he claimed to be. Secondly, notice also about these apostles. Secondly, is that these apostles were committed to the word of God. Okay, let me just kind of hit on this a little bit. They were committed to the word of God. Uh, they weren't just attending prayer meetings. Uh, Jesus spent uh, 40 days with his apostles, and he was teaching them and instructing them. We know where we looked at last week how he taught them about the kingdom of God. So there was certainly uh, instruction time. And I, I just suspect, too, that they were so uh, challenged, it would not surprise me. In fact, I think even with Peter's uh, uh, account here, 
that they were investigating the Scriptures. Now, they didn't have the New Testament. They had only the Old Testament Scriptures. But Jesus uh, could take the Old Testament at the end of Luke. Remember when he comes upon those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and he opened up the Word of God showing them everything in the law and the prophets concerning himself? So the Old Testament is full of Jesus just like the New Testament. New Testament obviously is a fuller revelation, but the Old Testament is full of Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to help us to understand of how all those things are pointing to Jesus. And so these disciples, they're digging into the Bible they're, or digging into the Scriptures and, and trying to understand uh, all that's taking place. I mean, we don't really quite, because it, it moves kind of rapid here in this narrative, but this is a radical, I mean, this is, they can't even fathom what's ahead, Right? And so they're trying to say, we need help with the Word of God. You know, that's a good example for us uh, when, when we're perplexed about something. Now, also remember what has shaken up this group. One of their very own, somebody that was with them for three and a half years, turned out to be a what? A traitor, a phony. Now, this wasn't just somebody that, well, you know, we kind of knew. You ever, You know, we do that. I knew there was something strange about that guy. No, you didn't. You were just as, you know, but we kind of do stuff like that. What was Judas's job in the, up among the disciples? He kept the money, which tells me they had enough money that somebody had to be in charge of it. I don't have that problem. Do you have that problem? Huh? If you do, God bless you. And uh, we'll take an extra offering out later. But, but they obviously had... Funds that were being given, they had to buy food and all those necessities and things that they went. But somebody had to be in charge of the treasury. And what, what do we find out? I think it's uh, John the Apostle that gives us a little clue of, or doesn't get a little clue. He tells us that what was Judas doing? He was dipping his hand into that money. He was stealing money. Probably they found out when they did a little accounting after he was dead. And they were like, wait a minute. What? I thought we had this amount of money. I thought we had this much. That Judas, you know, and I mean, they, so he was a thief. And so here was somebody that was among their ranks, somebody that they traveled with, they, they ate. I mean, they did all and experienced all these miracles. I mean, you know, when you go through uh, an experience, uh, you know, like if you go to college or maybe you go through a crisis experience with a group of people, that has a way of bonding you, doesn't it? That has a way of just, you know, you're just bonded because you've experienced the same kind of tragedy or whatever. So going back to these apostles, again, we don't quite feel the impact, but they're, they're, I'm sure they're reeling from this sense of loss. One of their own betrayed Jesus. Uh, maybe it caused them to kind of like, well, who else is maybe not authentic? You know, and they begin to look... What's the point? When, when they needed uh, direction, they went to the Word of God. They, they needed some grounding in the Word of God. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this. You can read it on your own at some other time, but we see that in verse 16 that uh, it's, Peter says, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Had to be fulfilled. What Scripture? Old Testament Scripture which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, Peter, and I'm going to just kind of 
just throw it out there and let you uh, look at it later. Uh, he quotes two psalms in this uh, section here, and I don't have it on the screen because we're not going to dwell on it, but he quotes uh, uh, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. But what he does is he connects those and not only to the betrayal as foretold in Scripture of Judas, but also connects uh, the other psalm to the replacement of Judas. And that's kind of all I want to say about that. But notice again what, how Peter views the Scriptures. And in this case, again, the Old Testament Scriptures, he said the Scripture had to be fulfilled. That speaks about the reliability of the Word of God. It didn't just remember when Matt Walter was here and he explained a little bit of how the Koran is put together and he said, it's, it's just, it's just kind of crazy. You know, I mean, there's no real logic to it and it's just... It's just, it just all over. There's no real... But Scripture, uh, true Scripture inspired of the Holy Spirit, uh, it had to be fulfilled. It, it gives us prophetic insight into events that uh, God had uh, planned ahead of time around the Messiah. But notice what he also says in verse 16. These aren't just the Psalms of David. They are the Psalms that who spoke to David? The Holy Spirit. So when we hold open the Word of God, when we hold open the Scriptures, this is the Spirit of God speaking. These are the words of God, and uh, don't want you to miss that. But Peter connected Scripture to their dilemma and sought insight there, and that's a tremendous example for us to do as well. That When we are in need of God's will, needing God's direction, we should be opening the Word of God. The Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures. Have you found like me, the times when you've been in a dilemma and, and searching God for an answer and you've asked everybody and their brother what they think and you still can't have any peace and you begin to get in and just open the Bible, sometimes it's sometimes literally just like that. You open the Bible, right? And your eyes fall down and God takes a scripture that you might have read for 10 years, and all of a sudden that Scripture, you're not reading Scripture, Scripture's reading you. You with me? Scripture comes alive, and the Holy Spirit applies that, and you know that's a word, and you're like, got it, Jesus. I'm, 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 I'm good now. Got it. And so don't miss that, that they were committed to the Word of God. Let me throw this out, too, because it doesn't really fit anywhere. How many people are in the upper room? Do we know? 120, right? 120. 120. Interesting, something you might want to do is look at the significance of 120. Uh, Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, how, you know how many priests that he had uh, gathered to uh, uh, play cymbals and blow horns and worship the Lord? You know how many priests? I'll let you have a wild guess. 120, huh? And so what is God doing in the church? And this is a little far you know, ahead of where we want to go, but God is establishing a new temple built not by hands, not by brick and mortar, but by who? His people, right? And so don't miss that little. Also, 120 is the number that was needed for the establishment of a Jewish community, was 120. Um, uh, also, uh, as part of... Uh, so anyway, that's, I just throw that out. You may want to look at that sometime. I found that interesting because sometimes we look at numbers and we just kind of bypass it, but they're significant as you look at Scripture and see that little, uh, little piece there about the 120. Notice thirdly that the apostles were trustworthy witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he was, the apostles were trustworthy. The, the apostles, they weren't trying to invent some new religion. 
You know, we've got a headquarters of a group in Clearwater that literally is some guy who wrote science fiction novels, invented a religion. Hello? I mean, that's what it is. Uh, I mean, you know, when you look into Scientology, it's, you, you find they must have gotten their theology by watching Star Trek and all this bizarre kind of stuff. But, you know, people buy into all that. The apostles, they weren't out to invent anything. In fact, their inclination was really to go back doing what they were doing before Jesus called them. What was Peter doing after uh, he saw Jesus alive? He's out and doing what? He's fishing. He's like, all right, might as well go back making a living. Remember he saw Jesus making breakfast on the shore and how he leapt into the water? Their inclination, everything that took place, again, was, was against what the, they, 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 they struggled with believing this whole thing. And they were trustworthy witnesses to the resurrection. They weren't trying to, again, they weren't, they weren't even really great theologians. They weren't philosophers, but they were witnesses. Look with me at verses 21 and 22 real quickly about the qualifications. Remember, they, Peter leads them uh, through the Spirit and through the Word that uh, they want to replace Judas. And so they come to this place here in verses 21 and 22 about replacing Judas, and the, the Scripture says, verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us, they're, they're, they're giving, uh, he's giving the qualifications. Okay, not just, they have 120, probably have a lot of good people there. But there's a criteria of who would meet the qualifications to replace Judas. So one of the men, this is Peter saying, here's the qualifications, uh, that they must have been somebody who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So it couldn't be somebody just showed up. It had to be somebody from the beginning that was with us. And we know that in many cases there was other quote-unquote disciples. Disciples is used in Scripture to be definitive about a group of 12, but sometimes in the Bible disciples is just meant as there's followers. There were many followers. Um, so he had to be somebody who's with us from the beginning. Verse 22, beginning, and he gives the timeline, and this kind of narrows it down, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he, Jesus, was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They weren't founders of a religion. They were just mere witnesses of this cataclysmic change and it's never happened of a resurrected Jesus. They are just witnesses to tell people that Jesus is alive. And so they went through this process and only two people could meet this qualification and that was uh, 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 Judas or Justice rather and Matthias. Look at number point number four and we see that the apostles were not only people who were trustworthy witnesses, they weren't just uh, looking to throw anybody in there, but it says that the apostles in this process were submitted to God's sovereign will. Now, now let me just uh, look at verse 24, put that on the screen, verse 24, and they prayed. That's a good place to start when you have a big decision, right? Right? But we tend to do it, you know, later on, right? But the first thing they said, they prayed and noticed... Uh, who they committed this process to. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, 
show which one of these two you have chosen. So they went through what they did, but they submitted they submitted themselves to God's sovereign will. So you have two individuals. You have Justice, was his Latin name, or Barsabas. And if you know, uh, we mentioned this before, B-A-R before a name means son of, like Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon Peter, son of Jonah, B-A-R in, in Hebrew. So Simon, or rather um, Barsabas, is son of the Sabbath. We don't know, maybe he was born on the Sabbath. We don't, we don't have any indication But he was one who met the qualification. And then you have another one by the name of Matthias. He met the qualification. So they do something interesting here is that they cast lots. uh, And this this at first seems like, well, that's kind of bizarre. Why are they doing that? Well, that actually, if you look in the Old Testament, you will see that this was not an uncommon process. There's probably about a half a dozen references where this casting of lots were two kind of uh, type of uh, little squares, almost like our dice type of thing. And, and sometimes it might would have a marking or indication or maybe have somebody's name and would put it kind of like, you know, we might would do with dice, put it in a cup and, uh, and believe that in this decision-making process, they weren't trusting, uh, you know, to roll a lucky seven, hello, but they said, Lord, use this process. And again, there's, there's about six different places in the Old Testament. What's interesting, it's the, only, it's the last time you ever see this mentioned in Scripture because what would change is they wouldn't need to cast lots to make decisions. They would ultimately have what? They would have the guidance of the Holy Spirit, not just with them and around them, but in Acts 2, they would have the actual Holy Spirit in them, filling them, okay? And so uh, we see here that they committed this to God's sovereign will. They said, God, this is your choice. This is your decision, okay? And so they were committed. Now, I want to spend just a little bit of the latter part of our time on this fifth observation, and it really could have fit earlier, but I wanted to spend a little more time on this before we uh, left Acts chapter 1, and that's fifth, is that the apostles were faithful in their obedience and prayer, okay? The, the apostles were faithful in their obedience and prayer. Now, in their obedience, uh, look at verse 14 again, and it says that all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, you remember what Jesus told them He told them uh, to go to Jerusalem and wait. And me, I'd be like, what are you talking about? Wait, you've given us the Great Commission. we got to get busy. we got people now that are out to maybe kill us. Jesus said, don't don't be surprised if they come after you or if they come after me. They're going to come after you. You know, a servant's not above their master. So they thought, well, maybe these folks are wanting to snuff out this Christian sect or whatever. So remember what they were doing uh, right after the crucifixion? They were hiding, you know, they, they, especially when they, remember Mary and the women came and they were behind locked doors? I mean, they, they, were, they were not out pushing themselves, but something dramatically changed. They saw that Jesus was alive and that changed everything. And so here they are that Jesus says, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, I want you to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. We don't like waiting. If we are in Walmart, invariably, when you shift lanes, 
right? Doesn't this always happen? When you shift lanes, the lane you got out of all of a sudden sped up. And the person now, a couple of folks in front of you, their debit card doesn't work or they're one of these coupon gurus and they're going through the whole deal to save four cents off of Tide and you're just like, I just want to buy some batteries or whatever it is, you know? And uh, so we don't like waiting. We're impatient. Imagine these disciples, I mean, they're like, wait, you know, we need to get busy doing the Lord's work. Maybe they were uh, impatient thing. We need to maybe earn a living. I mean, we had Jesus here, but we're going to have to make uh, some ends meet and uh, whatever. But Jesus said, I want you to be obedient and wait. And, and when we get to Acts chapter 2, that was a, a, that was a powerful move of God's Spirit of revival, right? That was, that was revival that took place. But a v- revival only takes place in an environment where God's people are obedient to his direction. Would you agree with that? Be obedient and agree. No. Do you agree with that? Or, I mean, God's indifferent. Do you agree with that? And that isn't just obedient like in some philosophical church sense. That means my own personal life, I need to be walking in obedience to Christ. And the first thing he told them to do was to go and wait. That probably, again, wasn't what they wanted to hear. But you know what they did? They obeyed and did what Jesus wanted them to do. Let me read you something. And I honestly forget the reference uh, of who, where I got this. But, but it's good and it's worth listening to. And the, this writer says, if we choose, because we're going to talk about prayer in a minute. If we choose to pray for revival, and we all believe we should pray for revival... If we choose to pray for revival instead of obeying God, we should not pray for revival. We should pray a prayer of repentance. We're good at we want to pray for revival, but if we are not walking in obedience personally to God's word, God is not going to hear that prayer. He, he, he wants us to get right and repent and start walking like we really believe this. Remember the disciples, they fully believed this. They didn't just believe Jesus' person, but they believed Jesus' teaching. They believed his word. They were all in. And so uh, prayer for revival, this writer said, is not a Band-Aid cure. If we are not passionate about sharing the gospel, honoring the word, and bringing glory to God, our prayers for revival are meaningless. And he quotes A.W. Tozer in this last statement. A.W. Tozer says, Have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying And it simply will not work. Listen, we need to pray. But if we are people who are not fully engaged in believing the Word of God for our own personal lives, then we're just going through a bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo, right? It's a farce. And so obedience was a hallmark of these apostles. But notice what they did in verse 14 that's on the screen. What did they do while they waited? They devoted themselves to what? They devoted themselves to the study of the theological ramifications of the coming of the Messiah in the end times. No. Wow, that sounded good, didn't it? They devoted themselves to prayer. 
Now, don't raise any hands, but, you know, sometimes our flesh says, you know, you wouldn't quite say this is kind of a waste of time, but, you know, can we wrap this prayer thing up? we got to get about doing the stuff. Prayer is the stuff, right? Prayer is positioning and hearing the direction and will of God. So why did Jesus have him go back and to wait? I think one of the reasons he did is because right off the bat, I think he was trying to teach them that they needed to be dependent and waiting on the direction of the Spirit of God through prayer, and that's what they did. Sometimes God will use what the old-timers used to refer to as God's waiting room when we need a decision, when we need direction. And if God doesn't answer me by Tuesday, then I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, God knows you're already going to do what you're going to do anyway. You're just playing this religious game and tacking him on it. I love when, I don't love it, I don't like it. But when people come to me, you know, and pastoring all these years, and they say, well, I just want you to know, I prayed about this, so I'm going to do such and such. And I'm like, you know, please give me a break. Because if you really prayed about it, you're doing something that is opposite of what the Scriptures, at least, and what I believe is your pastor wants to direct you to do. Don't tell me you pray. It's almost like I'm going to trump the whole discussion, and I'm going to layer prayer in the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes people come and say, the Holy Spirit directed me to do this, and I'm like, okay. I'm not going to challenge the voice of God who told you to do something. If that's what he told you, then who am I to stand in the way? And you know what? We do that because sometimes we want to do something. We just, in order to, to, to jack our case up with somebody, we would just tack on, well, I've prayed about this, or I got a word from the Spirit. And therefore, it's like, well, what, what, how am I going to challenge that? What am I going to do? There is genuine hearing from God. There is genuine being led by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, go and to wait for the Holy Spirit. And they didn't just sit around and, and, uh, and, and play games, and they didn't sit around and just talk about current events, but they were committed and joined together in prayer. They just had a major disruption in one of their ranks, and they needed God's direction. Notice three components that are important as we talk and understand the kind of praying that is happening here. Their praying was unanimous because, again, that, that being in one accord, uh, some your scriptures might, uh, you may have a kind of word that says they were all joined together. The point is, is that there was unity in this body. They, their praying was unanimous. It says in Acts 1.14, they were all together over and over again, Luke is emphasizing that they were together. They were together. Uh, it's important to have prayer, solitary prayer. We should have a daily time, uh, multiple daily times when we're communing and we're praying and we're seeking God's direction. But there is something that God uses when God's people come together in unity and prayer corporately as his body. And we see that as what happening is happening there. You remember uh, after the days after 9-11? Do you remember that? And how churches were open throughout the week and, and you saw Congress and all everybody was unified for about a month or two. And then what happened? Everybody just kind of, you know, drifted back to their same patterns. Why is united prayer important? Because we need to encourage each other. 
That's the reason the Bible is clear about not blowing off church. Because we are to encourage one another. There's a, there's, a, there's a unity that comes when we are together. We live in an American culture that for the past 50 years has moved very uh, radically into a very individualistic culture. You can sit in your basement eating your Cheetos and having church. You can even start a church in your basement on the Internet. Just you and your two followers on, on Facebook or whatever it is, you don't need anybody. You can just do it. There's a great book that came out uh, about 25 years ago, and I love the title. of it. It's called Bowling Alone because our culture has become more and more isolated, right? Some of you know your immediate neighbors by first name, if I just... But some of us don't. We go and open the drawbridge. We go into the back cave. Shut the door. And we're in our little kingdom. Right? And so the sense of community that characterized much of the American culture really had, from the 60s on has been moving, moving further and further away. That's the reason... People are hungry, and God uses small groups because there's something God has made in us to want to connect with each other. And if you're not connecting in a small group, whether it's a home group or some of our others, you need to do that. You need to be a part of that. And so we need to encourage one another. When a person gets weary, we need somebody to come alongside and lift our arms up. We need somebody to come along and, 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 and hold us accountable uh, we need that, uh, of being a part of a unified body. They were all together. Notice also a component in this prayer that was characteristic here in this uh, Acts chapter 1 early churches. Not only were they unanimous, but there was, they were harmonious. Luke uses a unique word there in the Greek to stress the harmony of their prayers. Uh, it, it, King James says they were in one accord. And what's interesting about this Greek word is it's a musical term or has been used as a musical term to mean this, to strike the same note together. You catch that? To strike the same note together. They were, there was harmony. There are certain groups, the eagles have great harmony. Maybe not so much anymore because they've had some heavenly transitions, or I hope heavenly, you know, we don't know. But there's certain, that's why families sometimes have singing groups, right? Because there's a harmony that they have. And now it's kind of like the African-American preacher that said about the anointing. When somebody asked him, said, do you know what the anointing is? And he said, well, I don't know what it is, but I sure know when it ain't. Harmony. Can't exactly tell you what it is, but I sure know when it ain't. They were harmonious. They were singing. Here's a, here's, here's, a, here's a Greek phrase. They were singing off the same page as a body. Now, shows you where my mind goes when I was studying this, and I almost wrote it in the notes, but I thought, no, I'm not going to say that, but I'm going to say it. I think about that episode on Andy Griffith with Barney and the choir. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Does that go back to anywhere? And you remember Barney? You feel sorry for the guy. You want to, he wants to sing so bad, but you know what? He has 
no harmony. He's out, I mean, and the director, they're always trying to, and I might be merging my Andy Griffith, but it seems like there's one time when Gomer sings from the back, and Barney opens his mouth, and you remember Jim Neighbors had that deep voice, you know, and, and all of a sudden, and uh, so that's your spiritual lesson from Andy Griffith today, all right? So there was harmony. They were harmonious. And, and this kind of, uh, I should maybe said this earlier, is that being having unanimous and harmonious, it's important that, that unity is important. Unity is vital, but a church is not effective can't be effective if they just have unity. We have unity around the faith, but if they're not operating as a unit, imagine if those of you were in the military, you had a certain unity because you're all in the core or you're all in the whatever it is branch of service, but part of that grueling boot camp, how many of you went to boot camp? All right, I never went to boot camp. I, I was in the army, but I was at nine years old playing army, all right, with my friends in the neighborhood. But part of putting you through that grueling boot camp, what is it, nine, how many weeks? I know it varies, but roughly 12, okay, 12 weeks. You were in the Marines, right? And your husband's in the Marines. Well, you're always in the Marines. I should be, make sure I corrected that. It is in order for you to function as a unit, as a, as a group, Right? That's one of the, the things there. And so as a church, we can have unity, we can have harmony, but if we are not moving in the same direction that the Spirit is leading the church, we're not going to be effective. And so they had that in gathering, and they were in one accord. And let me also say that harmonious implies that there was not rivalries and factions with each other. Going back to the choosing of the replacement of Judas, you know, that could have been a time the enemy could have really stirred up strife. Because among those two that met the qualification, I preached this message sometime last year about being offended. Barsabas wasn't chosen. Matthias was chosen, right? Barsabas, the other guy, he had all the same qualifications. There was only two of them. Out of that 120, only two. And you're like, why can't we have 13 apostles? Well, for one reason, 12 is a fixed number. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and being the church is the new Israel of God, that 12 imagery. And also in Revelation 21, it speaks about having 12 gates that were 12 gates representing the 12 tribes. And there was also 12 foundation stones that had the name of the 12 apostles on them. That's a fixed number. Somebody's going around claiming to be an apostle, leave them alone, okay? They're not an apostle. That's just a bunch of nonsense. There's a fixed number of apostles. And so it could have been a time to disrupt the un unity. It could have been a time to disrupt the harmony because you had other people saying, well, wait a minute. I, I, okay, maybe I wasn't there from the beginning, beginning, but I came along a few weeks later, and I, I should be considered I'm just as good as Matthias. Maybe the apostles thought, you know, we need a little political correctness. Nicodemus, he's kind of come along, and he's a believer. And Joseph of Arimathea, who gave the, his, his grave to, for Jesus to be buried in, he was a wealthy, prominent Jewish leader who was a, the Bible says that he was called a secret disciple. You know, they could really add some credibility to this group. Maybe we should make them the 12th apostle. 
Hello? What did they do? They said, we need to hear from God. And sometimes getting God's direction may not be always with the group and the majority, but if they are saying we are submitted and committed to hearing God's direction, we will follow God's leading and God's direction. And there's a third aspect here is that it was continuous. The Bible says they were constantly, they were continually in prayer. The idea is literally a, a, a determination that they were praying. You know, there's a lot of differences between the church then and the church now. Uh, I mean, a, a small group to now, the statistic is at least or a little over 2 billion believers around the world. They didn't have any Christian literature. They had the Old Testament. Now we've got, you name it, we've got it in every kind of media form and access to, to scriptures and, and great books and all those things. One congregation, now there's millions of congregations over the world. There's a lot of differences. And, and sometimes churches want to kind of go back and duplicate everything culturally and exactly, and, and it doesn't always work. But there's one thing that is fixed. There is one principle, I believe, that's a direct line from that upper room to every Christian around the world. There's a direct line between Jerusalem and Lakeland, and it's this, is that they were a church that was committed, as we should be, to wait on God, to hear from God, and not be so impatient until God speaks and God moves. They should be that kind of body, that we want to hear from God. This is His church so he should lead us, and he has organized and, and established means in which he's done that through leadership. And the body, that's the wonderful thing that we'll see when we come to Acts chapter 2, as the Spirit, as promised in Joel, Peter said that the Spirit of God would be poured out upon some flesh, some people, or all people. What was limited access in the Old Testament now has been opened up to everyone who has Christ Jesus as Lord. We collectively hear God's direction. But one of the sad things that happens to God's church is when a church loses that unity. Unity, unity of a church is one of the hallmarks of being a witness to the resurrected Lord. How will the world know we are his disciples? By our what? Love for one another. We come to Acts chapter 2. It speaks about how they had all things together in common because there was unity, harmony, continual hearing and praying. Paul would say that we are one body, many members, but we are one body as in Christ Jesus. This past week, I don't know if you followed much of the news, but uh, I caught a little bit of it, and uh, it was quite astounding, really, of what took place at the DMZ in where North Korea and South Korea have drawn their border line. And you know, since the war ended, the Korean War ended, they are still at war with each other. They are still at war with each other, officially still at war with each other. And I was doing, I don't know what I was doing, but I had the, you know, sometimes the TV will be on and the sound will be off. You ever just get tired of the noise? You just like, my son got me on putting on closed captions, so if I really want to know, I can just read it. But just sometimes that noise 
drives you nuts. But there was something that was just, I just was so struck when I saw that North Korean Kim Jong-un step across that DMZ line and shake the hand of the president of South Korea. Did anybody see that? Anybody see that? If you haven't seen it, go, go back and look at that. And to see what took place. Now, you know, it's like Reagan said, trust but verify. We want, we're not naive, right? But it's pretty astounding. I mean, that, that for, if you know anything about history, that is astounding what is taking place and the possibilities that could take place. And so I began to do a little reading, and um, uh, I, I, I kind of knew this, but never really paid much attention to it, that back in 1907, there was a massive revival in Korea. At that time, they weren't divided, but in Korea. And uh, Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea, Seoul is the capital of South Korea, do you know at one time that the revival at the turn of the 20th century, around the early 1900s, but that uh, that capital of North Korea was really the center of Asian Christianity at the turn of the century? And that Presbyterians... Now, this shows you God's working if you understand the implication. No, Presbyterians... And Methodists were instrumental in the revival that took place. And what took place is that in Pyongyang, that is still the capital or is the capital of North Korea, that about a little over 100 years ago, this massive revival took place. Instrumental was a Presbyterian missionary by the name of William Blair, and he preached to thousands of Korean men focusing on their need to turn away from their traditional hatred of the Japanese people with whom Korea had a long history of conflict. The missionaries and Korean Christians had been praying for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit for revival and repentance, and it came on a Saturday night in January 1907. And as they began to pray, they began to call upon the Lord, and their voices became one voice and the sound of many praying at one time. Listen to this statement. It wasn't confusion, but it was a vast harmony of sound and spirit, a mingling together of souls moved by an irresistible impulse to pray. The prayer sounded like this witness to me, like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. It was not many, but one, unanimous, born of one spirit, lifting their voices to one God above. It's interesting that, that Pyongyang, you know one of the phrases that was used about Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea today? It was called the Jerusalem of the East. Now the reason I bring that out is because sometimes we'll watch things and just see events kind of an isolated unfolding. But could it be that we are witnessing... There was a day in my generation that if you said the Soviet Union would be no more, we would have laughed at you. True? And what have we witnessed almost like that when it happened? The coming down of the wall in Berlin. The Soviet Union and the breakout above the Soviet Empire. 
Could it be that we are seeing the very beginnings of the crack? That the prayers of God's people, that the revival, they estimate in that two or three year period between 1907 and 1910, just in Pyongyang alone, there was probably 70,000 believers. In the nation of Korea, over 200,000. Now, after the Korean War and the division, Many of those believers had to flee to the south. And we know that, if you know anything, the intense persecution in the north is horrendous. But Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell cannot, will not stand against it. I hope that we celebrate what God is doing time will tell. But certainly the seeds have been sown. Lives have been changed by the gospel. And none of those, the word of God does not fall to dead ground, does it? The word of God is living and active. And wouldn't it be amazing if at some point in our life that we were supporting missionaries in North Korea? Because in that revival that took place, There was hospitals. There was the first four-year college ever in Korea established because of Christians during the early 1900s. There was was two or three different seminaries. There was major establishment of God's work in what today would be the region of North Korea. Why? Because people believed, people prayed, and they really sought God to do something in their midst. I believe God can do that in our generation too. But you know where it begins? It begins with us. Do we want it? 